It's a great honor to be here, and I thank you, Bishop Burbage, for inviting me to be here, and I was happy to be outside when Bishop Laverty came, so I, too, echo the congratulations. Father Wagner, of course, saw this folder and said, is there anything in there? <laughs> it's a pleasure to address all of you, and uh, I thank you all for the work that you do for our diocese, and a lot of it is seemingly behind the scenes to the people and parishes, but a lot of the hard work that you do enables the work that we do down at the campus ministry or in the parishes. So in the name of the priests of the diocese, I know many of us are greatly uh, appreciative for all the work that you do. Our beautiful Gospels are rightly called the good news. They record the work of the four evangelists who describe in such vivid and beautiful details the saving plan of God, the very action of God as he walked the earth. And we are rightly indebted to those four evangelists who so faithfully recorded those sacred writings because we are allowed to live, to breathe, to really ingest the saving truths of God. And when one does that, it changes a person. When one sees the work of God, one is changed. But one could rightly say that there is an earlier evangelist than those four. Perhaps we could use the word of Bishop Barron, who says that he is the first evangelist, which is the angel Gabriel. He comes to Zechariah and he says to him, I was sent to speak to you and announce to you good news. And then he goes to the Blessed Mother and says to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. The archangel brings a message that is both good and one we should not fear. So I would like to use these two messages of Gabriel as the basis of my reflection and perhaps see if they can give all of us who work for the church some hope and encouragement as we finish Advent and prepare to celebrate the holy season of Christmas. I was sent to speak to you and announce to you this good news. There's something beautiful about receiving an announcement from someone for a wedding or an upcoming birth. They signify an event of great dignity that is forthcoming. And if you think about it, we only send announcements out for the greatest events in our lives. We rarely just send announcements out for dinner parties and whatnot. But for those events that are most important, we send announcements for these events are the ones we want people to set aside the date and make whatever preparations are needed to be there. We even create magnets so that people can keep looking at that date over and over. <laughs> Sometimes it hangs on the fridge for years afterwards. <laughs> the message that Gabriel gave Zechariah and the Blessed Mother was life-changing. It was the direct preparation of God to prepare His Son to be welcomed into the world. That is truly good news. 
But what we often miss, you know, from our perspective now is the way that it was received then. The reaction of that good news was not immediate joy. We must remember that sometimes people do not understand the good news that is spoken when they initially hear it. We all know well the beautiful action of the Lord when we have lived in and are living in a state of grace. And Zechariah firsthand was a recipient of a movement of God. Imagine seeing the angel appear and state those words to you. And what is he told? He is told, you will be the father of John the Baptist. But in that moment, there was fear. And I often think that this is true about people as they enter our parishes, or perhaps when they call the chancery. In particular, if these people are not already well connected to the faith. We all know very well that we want them to experience the beauty of living a life of grace. We want people to know that we will tell them whatever we say is actually good news. But isn't it true that sometimes the way we convey that news does not take into account that a person may not know the reasons for the structures that we have in place or may not be in a place in their spiritual life to immediately see values to those structures. This is where it is incumbent upon us to begin by saying some version of the angel Gabriel's statement. I am here to announce to you great news. At one of my parishes, I watched how people were welcomed when they came into the office. First, they were buzzed through multiple doors. Some of you may have experienced that too. Almost as good as a bank, you know, when you go. <laughs> and then once they came in, they were met by the secretarial staff that was there who asked in a very pleasant way, how can we help you? And then if a person needed baptism, they were handed a certain form and told about the baptism class that they would be asked to attend. If they were getting married, they would be told to write down their name and a priest would give them a call and they said there'll be six months of formation. And then after that, they were out the door. Now many of these people, I realized, as I would come through the office as they would enter, I'd never seen before. I certainly didn't recognize them. They weren't regular parishioners who I knew their names. And so I asked myself, why is this the way that we handle these visitors? And it became apparent that the reason was this is the way that we had always done it. It was the most expedient way. It was the way that got the information out, good information, but in a way that we knew we could get the thing done. And it wasn't in any way meant to offend, and no one seemed to be offended at all. But after seeing this for some time, and with my pastor's permission, which is quite important, <laughs> I proposed that when many of these individuals were coming into our office for the first time, they were coming to celebrate something. 
And in their lives, it was one of the happiest days. Could we not begin better by rejoicing with the couple who were getting married or having a child and then after we had done that, move in to the business aspects of Paris life? Does this not better enable us to share the good news, to better encourage people who often may not have come to church in years in a more embracing way? That would not have happened if we had just collected a phone number or informed them of a baptismal class time. And what did we lose? A minute? Maybe two? And this is but an example of a larger need of us to recognize in the world that we live in, it is increasingly secular. We know this. But we must propose beauty and goodness of the faith in new ways to engage the people who most need to hear it. And this is not in any way to compromise the beauty of the truth, but to propose it in a manner where it will better be heard. The ability for us to adapt in seeming small ways actually makes a huge impact on many people. When I started at the University of Mary Washington, I brought my staff out into the main lobby of the building that we have. And I said to them this, I said next to the chapel, this is the most important room in this building. It is here that we greet people in the name of Christ and no one can access the chapel without coming through this lobby. The first encounter people have with the church at a parish rectory or chancery office is not a priest. It is all of you. It is my secretary who so faithfully does her job down there, Ronnie. You all and the people in parish offices are often the first representatives of the church that people meet. Every parent, student, faculty member, vendor, mailman who enters our building should meet someone who greets them with the joy of Christ. And I'm sure in the chancery offices, you receive thousands of calls and visitors each month. Each of these is an opportunity for this initial encounter to spread the good news. Now let's advance this idea one step further. For I am reminded of the words of St. Augustine, who said, one loving heart sets another on fire. How beautiful and true are these words. The encounter of the good news of salvation radically changes a person. We should, and I hope each of us here have, experienced the change that takes place from encountering the Lord. And if, if and when that has taken place in your lives, and I pray that it has, and if not, certainly pray for that grace, There is something of this permanent peace that sets up in the heart of a person who has encountered the Lord. That is why the great saints were able to do what they did. They did it not because they saw what they did was overly great, but they were compelled to act. And they did seeming things that were, to the outside person, certainly abnormal, but to them were necessary to do for God. This encounter with holiness changes us and we become inflamed. If you've ever met 
someone who's very holy, they almost have a perfume about them. Where people, even ones who are not that holy or seeking deliberately the way of faith, they're attracted to them. They, they in a sense, say, I may not be able to leave, live this way, but at least someone is living this way. There's something attractive about that. To be this to others requires another rule to be set in place. We must be prepared to accompany those who cross the thresholds of our homes, our parishes, the chancery offices, to experience the good news. As we all know from the story of Zechariah, he was not immediately ready to receive the angel's good news. And there was an immediate consequence of it. He was silenced for nine months. We don't know if Elizabeth was happy about that or not. Yet in this time, the words of the angel were able to be accepted. And when questioned about the child's name, he echoes his wife's statement. His name will be John. God's grace accompanied Zechariah during those months, but his life had to be interrupted in order for this to take place. In addition to telling my staff that the foyer of the building was such an important room, I asked that they find me any time a new person entered the building, whether it be a student, a parent, or other visitor, so that I could personally meet them. Unless I'm in a meeting or saying Mass, one of the staff will often come into my office and say something like, a new student just came in and his name is Tom. And as a rule, I try to personally meet each person who enters the Catholic Center. And I know you may think, because I certainly would, isn't this bothersome and at times highly inconvenient? Exceptionally so. <laughs> Particularly in August and September, when you have new freshmen coming in many times a day. You can imagine they're popping over, oh, I just saw the building, I'm stopping in. But this individual encounter yields great fruit for the Lord. We must let the Lord interrupt our lives. We don't need to hear anew the thousands of reasons why we can't do this now, but the one reason why we must. It is the interruption, in that very interruption, that we are able to encounter the people whom God has willed to enter our lives. Here are the moments where we can be the means of grace and help them to encounter that fire that St. Augustine talks about. We who know the good news much, must detach ourselves from our schedules enough to be present to those interruptions that are often the seeds of great grace. And now let us move on to the second quote. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Very often in life, we, when we try to do something new, often have fear. And that often binds us to some degree. What if we are not accepted? What will people think? How will this affect me? And this can be heightened when we have a request that we feel 
or perhaps is, directly from God or from our superiors. In a world that is increasingly hostile to faith or at least apathetic to it, this fear can often move us to do nothing but to keep going with the flow. But this was not the way of the Blessed Mother. Receiving the message of the archangel, we are told of her beautiful fiat, something that several times a year comes up in the readings, which I love so much, that we hear again and again the same answer that we all need to say over and over to God. That is the, key, the entrance into heaven, to say yes to God. And that's what she did. And unlike Zechariah, her response is trust. And she says something that we all know now to be true, but she says, the Almighty would do great things for me. And so he did. These were not just words said in a prayer, though. This was really the motto of the Blessed Mother's life. Her yes was a yes made over and over. She lived the yes to God. She lived what grace does. Grace compels the heart to live for God. Quoting Pope Francis, When Mary says, I am the handmaid of the Lord, in response to the news that she will become the mother of God, she doesn't say, this time I will do the will of God. I'm available and then I'll see. <laughs> Hers is a full yes, without condition. The Holy Father notes that at times, instead of imitating this attitude, we are experts in half yeses. We are good at pretending not to understand what God wants and what consciousness suggests. So how do we have this break? Have a breakthrough, in a sense. To be a person who says yes to God and then keep saying yes over and over. Not just today, but for decades of one's life. As a child, my family would go and visit a Santa at the Maryfield Garden Center. Do any of you take your children there? Okay, so several of you know very well. The Santa there is played by John Buckreis, who decorates the center each year. Now last year he retired at 89. But this year he came out of retirement <laughs> to do one more year at 90. And if you know his story, which I encourage you all to know, it was written up actually in the Herald, I think, at one point, but he started taking the role of Santa in an orphanage where he was a child back in the 1940s. And wherever he set up his shop, first in Fisher's Hardware and then he went to a number of other stores, he required that the nativity scene be right next to his sleigh. And that when he hands out little treats to the children, he always gives a holy card and a lollipop. At one time when he was in a store, he had told me that someone said, well, you've you got to put the nativity elsewhere. And so he left. He refused to play the role of Santa without the nativity. So every year, my family still goes. I'm not on his laps asking for gifts anymore. <laughs> but we go over there right after Thanksgiving, 
And so since he was going to be here this year, we went over, and they have sort of a, a party in the garden shop part, and they have excellent punch, so I always go and get the punch. But <laughs> while I was drinking the punch, I hear bells ringing, and in comes Santa into this shop that probably had 100 or more people in it. But no one was engaging him. He's just wandering through ringing bells, and then he went into this particular room and sat down. So I went over and talked with him for a bit, and he said, I'd like you to come and see the opening of my presentation. So I said, sure. So my family and I went over. So we go into this room that he had decorated, and there's probably 50 or so random children with their parents seated in the room, and out he comes. And he immediately begins not by greeting or doing anything else, by singing. And he's, I will save you this, the song component, but I will say, he said, come with me, come with me to the nativity. And then he takes all of the children with him to a very large nativity scene that he prepared and tells them the beautiful story of the coming of Christ. And this is done in a garden center in Fairfax County. My friends, this is how we say yes to God for the whole of life. We keep doing what he calls us to do. How unlikely to see a great evangelist in Fairfax County being a 90-year-old man dressed in a red suit. But who can argue this point? Without fear, John proclaims Christ to every one of the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people he has met in the 70 years he has played that role. And not just by chance. See, we don't want to say, oh, well, that's just his role. He mandates that the nativity be there. He specifically sets up his center with the biggest part, not being the elf hats, but the nativity scene. And then he sets up his actual presentation to the children to be one that it leads them to the nativity. And sitting before him are people of all different faiths, all different backgrounds, who come to him because he plays the role of Santa well. That is a master evangelist, whether or not he knows it or not. The working in the vineyard of the Lord often involves much time and effort, It requires all of us to see grace as guiding us and the Holy Spirit as leading us, just as the Holy Spirit led the Blessed Mother as she spoke her fiat. To be efficient is not necessarily to be holy. Everything does not neatly fit into policy manuals and structures that work for us who know how the church works. We must be able to think outside the box or else we can fall into the trap of assuming because we are efficient, the good news is being proclaimed. Now this is very important. Love, my friends, is not efficient. In fact, those two words would never be paired together. Love is not moderated. And it demands all of oneself. It compels one to move when fear would say otherwise. Love and fear never exist together. And if they ever meet, one always replaces the other. 
Those are key words to remember. Because when we think about the life of faith and what we're doing, we must ask what is the motivating factor of what I do here. And I would propose that too often in our day and age, we have hidden our fears of opposition or outright hostility by safely packaging the gospel in a way that is efficient and with words that can be interpreted in many different ways. And so our message, while heard by many, is accepted and lived by few. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this? So we have to ask that question. Our faith is given to us by God as a means for us to come to know Him, but not in a way of reading a book for facts or studying something in a laboratory, but rather to know Him via the language of God, which is love. I often tell people who ask me, and it's amazing that they ask me this because they must think I'm a linguist, how many languages I speak, (laughs) that I'm still learning English. (laughs) A fact that my mom regularly verifies. But the language of love is a language that we are all wired to know and one which we all must come to know. It is, my friends, the universal language of man. Every man, woman, and child is wired to love. Everyone can spot true love. You don't need to advertise it. Look, here's true love. People can see it. We crave to be loved. And I would argue that we can communicate with every person if we show them love. Now, does this mean that the message that I said we can communicate would be received immediately? No. In fact, it will often first be received with opposition and oftentimes hostility. The exact same way that God was received. From his very first moment on earth, King Herod, moving in for the kill. But my friends, let us remember the words of St. Augustine. One loving heart sets another on fire. At the beginning of the academic year, there is something called the 168 hours. You've been on college campuses, that isn't just something of campus ministry, but Club leaders and even the college itself will know that during the first 168 hours, which is the first week the students are on campus, Mm -hmm. studies show that's when they make their best friends and they get involved with the organizations that they're going to be involved with for the rest of their time on college. So every organization on campus goes out and tries to do whatever they can do to get people through their doors or to get involved with their clubs. One of the things that we do is we purchase um, glow sticks that go around, well, really they go around the neck, but I'll call them glow sticks. And we go and we have the students go out and hand them out to every student on campus. They're different colors. One's blue and one's green. And so they'll go and they'll just hand out and they say, if you show up at the fountain or wherever it is in the middle of campus at 9 o'clock, we're going to play a campus-wide game of capture the flag. You can imagine, it's very successful because people want to play a campus-wide game of, of capture the flag. I mean, when do you play a game with hundreds of people coming for 
capture the flag. Then afterwards, we hold a ice cream social, and then we do night prayer. So we have a system set up where we have something that is large and then we bring them back to something that they would want to do. But you can imagine the people that are coming into the Catholic Center then are not just people who have, in many cases, never gone to Mass, but some of them are from all different spectrums of life. And so into this room, my second year when I was chaplain, came a large swath of students. And I try to go around and say hello to each student that's there, and along with my staff, they're doing the same thing. And I came upon this girl who was sitting eating ice cream. She had a huge tattoo on her back that had a symbol of autism on it. So I went over to ask her about that. And when I stuck my hand out to say hello to her, she turned around. This is exactly what she said to me. She reared back and she said, I'm an atheist. I was raised Baptist. I hate religious leaders. I find you all to be extremely judgmental. And I'm sure you're here to judge me for who I am. That was how she greeted me. So I said, well, actually, I was just coming to say hello. <laughs> how do you like the ice cream? <laughs> but then I kept moving. Now, she was there with one of the other students who she knew. She was a softball player. And I did not see her immediately after that. But a month later, she was in the student center again. And this time, she was selling tickets. They were trying to get uh, to South Carolina for spring break. So she came up to me, because obviously I look like I have a ton of money. And she said, <laughs> she said to me, will you buy one of these tickets? For $25, you can win 10000 Well, I know my luck. That wasn't happening. <laughs> but here's what I said. Well, no, I'm not really interested in the $10,000. But I said, if you'll come to four events here at the Catholic Center, or come and meet with me four times with Maddie, who was her friend, I said, I'll buy the ticket. So she said, sounds like a deal. So I bought the ticket from her. Well, she set up her meeting. So in we came, and you can imagine it was slightly awkward when we began. She said, well, what are we here to talk about? I said, we're just here to chat. So I said, since we're going to meet a few times, why don't you pick three things you want to talk about, and I'll pick three things that I want to talk about. So we each picked three items that we would talk about. Now, some of them were more banal, you know, what your favorite color is, do you like Outback Steakhouse? Essential items for conversation. <laughs> But then we would all, she would ask things like, and good question, she'd say, do you really think that prayer works? And I would counter when it was my turn. I'd say, how do you understand life? Do you think there's such thing as truth? And so we would have these discussions back and forth. And so for three meetings, she and her friend came. Well, the fourth meeting, her friend got sick. So I assumed she wasn't going to show up, but in came the girl. And so as we're having the, the meeting, she says, Father, she says, I need to tell you something. She said, never in my life would I believe I would be sitting in a Catholic priest's office enjoying the conversation that I'm having with him. Now, she transferred schools, and the girl, Maddie, came up to me one day, and she said, now what were you doing? Were you trying to convert her? I said, no. An atheist came on her own to meet with a priest, and she will never again be able to say that a religious leader did not care for her. And in our meetings, what did we talk about? 
the beauty of living the life of faith. What was the first encounter I had? Someone who reared back in horror. Not because I was a priest. It was all religious leaders were dumped into that category. The person needed to have the opportunity of the encounter. Our society, and we should be honest here, members of our own families see the message of Christ as less and less apropos to their lives. We must go forth with the good news of Christ and without any fear. To learn the language of God better means that like Gabriel, we will bring a message to those who we work with, those who we live with, those who we sit next to every week at Mass, who sit in front of us, behind us, next to us, who are the same people and yet we've never shaken hands with and said, who are you? And even those who come into our lives through random encounters. And we will offer them what? The good news. Even if they oppose us. And why do we do this? We do it out of love. And where love is, We have no fear. The result of this can be truly amazing. If we just allow love to flow from our lips. Think of this. Love changes people. A 90-year-old man in a red suit can sit for 70 years of his life telling the story of Christ's birth to children. Zechariah trained his son to proclaim Christ even if it meant his son losing his head, his only child. The Blessed Mother said those beautiful words at Cana, do whatever he tells you. And even God said back to her, my hour has not yet come. And yet she turns and says that to the waiters, knowing the public ministry lay before him. Each of these lives were the result of an understanding of the language of God. Let us learn the language of God and may each of us live lives that communicate this to those whom we are blessed to meet. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Do I take questions? Or?